0: Hey, everyone. So today's show, it's pretty special, and it's pretty powerful, but it's pretty awful. It also ends with a story of redemption, and it has a silver lining. Today, I'm talking with Jarrett Adams. He is now a lawyer, but as a young 17-year-old, a black man from the wrong neighborhood in Chicago, he was wrongfully convicted by an all-white jury of a rape he didn't commit, and he was sentenced to 28 years in prison. Hard time. Welcome to the Successful Business and Practice of Law, presented by Clerk. I'm your host, Greg Garman. Jarrett and I talked today about his decade behind bars in some of the worst places under the worst conditions you can imagine. Jarrett, he became a jailhouse lawyer. Jarrett literally learned the law to free himself. Little Johnny Cochran, his fellow inmates called him. Jarrett went on to college, then law school. And now he has a nationwide practice specializing in freeing the wrongfully convicted and in civil rights violations. And what Jared is doing, I think, is really important and a really big deal. Because this type of work has usually been the domain of innocence projects or pro bono work. But Jared, he used his own experience to build a new type of law firm, a for-profit law firm, And anyone who is a regular listener to this show knows that what I believe will change the legal system are new business models that allow us lawyers to do things differently. Jarrett details his story in a really great book, Redeeming Justice. We'll drop a link to Amazon in the show notes. And I really can't say enough about how compelling this book and his story are. It was my gift of choice over the holidays. More so than any book I remember, it shows, when at its worst, just how broken the justice system can be. And you don't have to take my word for it. The front cover has endorsements from lawyers John Grisham and Scott Turow. This is one you really should stick around for. So let's welcome Jarrett to the show.
1: Thank you for having me. I appreciate being here.
0: So, Jarrett, the book, let me just begin by congratulating you. I'll admit, in my own heart, I can't figure out whether this is a, a tragedy or an enlightening story of you know, redemption of, of a man overcoming his circumstances. But the book is amongst the, the most well-reviewed uh, early books I've seen. You put it out in what, September?
1: Yeah, in September.
0: The, the critical review has been great. I think uh, Amazon identified it as a uh, best book of September, the very first month it came out. And how'd the book come to be?
1: Well, thank you again for having me on and, and to be able to share my story. Uh, you know, it, It's important to be able to share stories, to create opportunities, to create other stories. And so the book came about basically by, by this. So I, I, you know, wrongfully convicted, conviction overturned, get out. And I'm racing to get this law degree and I'm doing it with the mindset of once I get this degree, then I'll be able to swing this law degree around like a shield and it'll protect everyone. And and it's just not the case. And so I realized that, you know, with the practice, there was another act, you know, that I needed to focus on as well. And that act was the mass inspiration, the mass telling of the story in order to get mass change. In this mass incarceration era. And so I I thought about writing the book in a way where it was one thing for me to just write the book and say, look at me, look at this is what happened. But those stories aren't aren't they're not, you know, different, right? There's a lot of them like that. So I wanted to write the book because I needed to be able to to bring people in, humanize the situation in order to get people to care about it enough to help. So, Jared, you know, the audience
0: of this show is lawyers. And as a lawyer myself, I had a really strange feeling when I finished your book. I feel compelled to apologize almost on behalf of the profession, even though obviously I had nothing to do with it. But yeah. it makes me wonder, how much of this do you blame on lawyers for accepting a broken system? And, and how much of it can we change versus changes yeah. that need to be made by a legislative body or someone else?
1: So whenever you have a problem like this, it, it, takes, it takes a holistic approach. However, I will say this. Well, where I don't blame lawyers for the issues that we have in the criminal justice system, I want to make sure that I point out to our profession, it's our responsibility. This country mm-hmm. was founded on litigation, a bunch of people litigating different issues you know, to make this place a better place. And so- who are we to believe that that won't be how we get out of mass incarceration, and so that's the thing about it like we we have to acknowledge that as attorneys uh we, we you can call yourself whatever you want when you're an attorney, you serve the people that's what you do. We serve mm-hmm. as people, and so we have sectors of our society who are being taken advantage of, and we took an an, an oath an e- ethical obligation you know to be the voice for those voiceless people and so in this situation. You know, I think that 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 we have to acknowledge that we have to have everybody: tax attorneys, bankruptcies attorneys, you you name it. Everyone has to contribute to this pandemic that is the criminal justice system.
0: And there's a part in the book where you, I guess, through your experience, you highlighted the difference between the U.S. adversarial system and the English system that you had a little exposure to that you thought was was less adversarial. Do, do you think? From a kind of fundamental baseline perspective, the way we've set the system up as being adversarial is the right way to go, or have we just all accepted this premise that's taught to us beginning on on day one of law school that uh that we might need to rethink
1: yeah, and I think it's that it's the latter it's the premise it's this idea that you know this is the our founding fathers. You know instructions, and we have to follow it no matter what. And I think that it's illogical. I think that if our founding fathers were here right now, they would accept the advancements in technology and science to help us deal with the criminal justice system and make it better. I mean, they wouldn't just say, "Well, no, that's the way that it is; it's always been." And I think that 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 it's it's foolish of us to continue to make that argument. And yeah, you know, I mentioned that part in the book for a reason because, and and for folks, I I ask folks to go out there. And get the book. It's an it's easy, quick read. And I wrote it that way on purpose. And basically the part that Greg is talking about, whereas I was at the Old Bailey, which is the criminal court system in London. And I had the opportunity to see this, this female barrister. She was so amazing. She was prosecuting a child sex allegation at the earlier during the week. And our job was to go every day. So I saw her again at the end of the week and she was defending a sexual assault case this time. And she was equally as bad, equally as aggressive and knowledgeable about the law. And it, it made me go back and think and write a paper that says they figured out how to keep and preserve the sympathy and empathy in their court system. And that's the truth. If, if we are so busy swinging the hammer, everything is going to look like a nail. And that's the issue that we have in our, in our criminal justice system. Right. So, in your
0: circumstances, you know, you're a 17 year old, you're convicted, and you're sentenced to 28 years. How much of the blame for this travesty of justice do you place on the individual lawyer who defended you or actually didn't defend you in the first case, the initial public defender?
1: He's partly to blame, but the biggest blame goes to the setup itself, where you have a panel list of attorneys. Who are selected to take on cases such as mine. There are no checks and balances. There are no resources. They're getting paid $50 an hour for a case. It has all the hallmarks of ineptness. Like that's what that is. They're, they're, you know. And so if you're looking to get a, a level balanced playing field, we have to invest in both the training of, of new attorneys and the resources to to balance the level the plant level of playing field, and that only happens if all lawyers, all big law, all small law, take their hand in helping to move this needle along.
0: And so, what are the? I mean, what are the initial concrete steps that, as a profession or even as a society, you think we ought to be taking to at least begin the the movement in the right direction?
1: The first thing that we really need to do is this: we need to to. Invest in our public defense system. Right now, public defenders are are carrying caseloads of 50 to 75 cases at a time. Greg, if me and you did that, we would be in front of the board of bar examiners explaining how we could be effective. So we I think we we can't we can't allow that to happen. And also this: we have a system where 80% of folks rely on a public defense system when accused of a crime. So if you have those numbers those numbers show that something can go wrong that's those that's what those numbers mean and so i think that you know one of the things that we need to do is invest in the public defense system that's number 1 number 2 is as quickly as possible we need to bridge the gap between the 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 social worker and mental health care field and our criminal justice field and that's both not just for mm-hmm. the people who are housed inside of these correctional facilities but also the correctional officers themselves. I've seen, Greg, and I put this in a book, I've seen guys come right off of the high school graduation stage, get a job as a correctional officer. That same officer who I could talk sports, Green Bay Packers with for hours when he first gets there, by the time six months has passed, he's jaded, he's tired, he doesn't want to come back. He's aggressive now because of the atmosphere. So this this is, we have to have Social workers therapy and more important, we have to have the resources to get this change done and implemented. So, boy, there's so many things to
0: follow up on that one answer. But let me let me start from the top. The system. How much faith do you have in the jury system anymore? Because because you know you were convicted of a jury, probably not of your peers. I know uh, all white. uh I know it was a it was it was an all-white jury. How much of what you endured was a broken system and how much of it Was racism?
1: Listen, let's let's not skirt around it. If Kyle Rittenhouse was was Jared Adams, I'd be on my way to uh, intake right now. You know that that's that's the difference, right? I practice law in the state of Wisconsin. I've never seen the interpretation of those gun statutes interpreted that way ever in my life. I've never seen the self defense interpreted that way ever in my life, right? But for Kyle Rittenhouse, they are and And it's just a it's a glaring example of not only is the jury system broken, but it was it was never operable And here's what I mean by that: We allow for gender to make an equate for a jury of his peer system. So that's how I'm able to sit in front of an all white jury because if it has one female, we've considered you know gender in the minority category. So that is a wrench. It's a wrench in our jury system. So that's how you get all white juries making decisions on on black defendants as you did mine. That's how you get these challenges that'll get away and do away with the minority jurors and allow someone to, to, you know, to basically throw a monkey wrench like the Omar Aubrey. Trial. So, yeah, the entire system itself and its jury selection, there are some draconian things within our system, Greg, we would never allow. Because if that was the case, why would we accept cell phones? Huh? Right. But let me ask you a more pointed question, though. You know, we as
0: lawyers, again, maybe not day one, but month one of law school, you know, we're sort of taught the essential integrity of the jury system. And over my couple of decades in law, I've grown incredibly disheartened. I don't I'm trust juries, civil Man. criminal. I't I'm not sure that they're actually a noble component of our justice system, again, civil or criminal. I mean is it something that needs to be reformed or is it something that in, in some ways needs to be done away with?
1: It has to be reform. I don't think we can do away with a jury system. We need the jury. We need the public. We need jurors. What we need to do is we need to spend more resources and time educating jurors and educating courts. There are courts who are making decisions about scientific evidence and have no idea what they are talking about. So you're 17
0: years old. You've been convicted and you enter... Cook County Jail. I guess that's sort of process-wise where you go, but yeah. that's just a, a notorious place, a, a dangerous place. I mean, it, it's—I mean—been uh, described as you know hell on earth. But h- how does that happen to a seventeen-year-old? How do you get there?
1: You know, the the system has allowed itself to throw away certain people because they look a certain way or they have a certain amount of resources, and that's that is the truth about it. Whether or not we want to accept it. You know, or not. That's the truth about it. That's how you can, you can take a 17 year old and, you know, you could throw an African American 17 year old in a den full of wolves. And it doesn't always happen to our counterparts, you know, and, that, and that's the thing. But as a minor, shouldn't you have gone someplace else? Or is that
0: just a kind of misunderstanding I have of, of how it works anymore? In certain states,
1: 16 or even 17 is considered an adult and that's the situation that I was in and the state that I was in 17 year old was considered as an adult. Now I mean look, 17 year old you're able to to go to prison for the rest of your life but you you can't go vote at 17. Right. You know what I mean? So it's right. just like it's our understanding and realities that are that are just at conflict on on certain issues.
0: So kind of circling back to something you said earlier, you know, you talked about prison guards that you know you sort of knew before they they had the job. I've had you know kind of a similar experience in that, you know, I've got a n- number of friends and acquaintances in in law enforcement and it's anecdotal, but they kind of fall into two categories. They either fall into the category of amongst the best men and women I've ever met in my whole life that I would I would trust with anything or a second group that is awful and uncomfortable the thin blue line um, you know the folks who could have fallen on either side of the of the law and they yeah. find themselves becoming guards and or police and i've never really experienced a lot in the way of middle ground and and, and so it yeah. was a long way of warming up to a question for you which is you know how much is it that the system attracts the wrong people versus kind of creates The wrong people and that it takes good people and and jades them. Because clearly not everybody in the system is bad. And and and, I'm and I'm hopeful to think that even most of them are good. But you know, your experience is is unique on this. And you know, what
1: what did you experience? I do think that there are mechanisms that allow to recruit a certain type of of you know officer, um, correctional officer. Like for the most part, a lot of service you know, men and women, go right into policing. And I don't think that that's that's always a good thing. And I have a buddy who, you know, left the Air Force, went into the VA hospital. So I'm not speaking from an uninformed position. And the reason why I say that is because of this. I was on a podcast with the guy before, and he was talking about how he had done, it was Wes Moore, actually. And he was Mm -hmm. talking about how, you know, being an officer was no different than walking around in, in Fallujah, and you're trying to make nice and speak to the locals, and you're there to help to protect. But that's not how they view you, right? Mm-hmm. They view you as occupying. And I think that that to your question, that that goes to answer that. Like in a lot of these neighborhoods and a lot of these areas, you know, we have people who are ex and military. And I'm not saying that they shouldn't get jobs and get employment at all. But I am saying is. You know, are they getting the necessary help? Are they getting the PTSD? You know, right. are, they, are they taking that with them into the squad cars? How much are we putting in in, in training and therapy for the officers, for the correctional officers and stuff like that? I, to answer your question, Greg, absolutely. There are, there are great areas that allow us to fill our ranks with people who should really be fixing themselves before they can go protect and serve. Well
0: and then and then even in our profession th- there are people who have different skill sets yeah. you know some of the best lawyers in the world are true advocates in which they're scorched earth litigators who can measure success by defeating the the party on the other side of the caption and then we have those in our profession who are you know deal lawyers and at the end of at the end of a deal it's win win and everybody goes to a closing dinner and you know yeah. and and then there's everything in between and i've certainly Look, some, some of the best litigators in the world are good business folks. But on the whole, you know, I've experienced that their skill set is winner take all. They're taught that. They're paid to be that. And it doesn't yeah. lend themselves to, uh, to, to kind of finding that compassionate middle. And I don't fault them for that. But, but that just exists in even our tiny little corner of the world. And it certainly must exist in, in other areas. There's retribution by the guards, uh, by the prison system, based yeah. upon you being a, a, a courthouse lawyer and some other stuff we'll get into. But you know, how much of that was, was sort of unique to your experience because you know the, the little Johnny Cochran with the glasses uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, moniker that was given to you, and, and, and how much of that do you just think existed in, in, the, in the system in general towards inmates?
1: The best way to answer this is this. The Department of Corrections is not correcting anything. It's warehousing men and increasingly mm-hmm. women. There are things that you have to do to navigate your way around the politics that is prison. For me, you know, I wanted to come home, Greg. I knew I was innocent. I just didn't know how the hell this happened to me and how I was going to get out right. of it. So right. I started to read as much as I could, write as much as I could, and helping people was sharpening my skills to help myself. But what I saw there was a bunch of people getting up, eating potato chips, betting potato chips, fighting over bets for potato chips, and wash, rinse, repeat. There's no real repairing at all of people. And one of the scariest things that I saw was this. You know, people ask me oftentimes, you know, what's the scariest thing you saw? And they expect for me to say an act of violence. It wasn't an act of violence. The scariest thing I saw was people getting out of prison in the wintertime only to return by the end of the summer. That's one of the scariest things I ever saw. Like in there, because I said to myself, you know, what type of hold does this thing place on you, to where people are coming in and out and in and out, and it's just like, oh well, yeah, I'm back, and it's like, hell no, something is going on here.
0: Is there any realistic way to go from
1: warehousing people to rehabilitation? Absolutely. I mean, that goes to the investment incentivizing. But you know, Bill Gates said Mm -hmm. it best: we don't get out of violence and poverty. You know, by no other way than incentivizing folks. Like, that's mm-hmm. it. And that's the same thing that we have to do. Like, these tough on law crimes, and you know, you're, you're doing mandatory minimum sentences. That doesn't make us safer. That mm-hmm. creates hopelessness inside of these prisons, which do nothing more than spill on to the people who are getting in and getting out.
0: Right. Did you experience any remorse on the part of the system, judges, prosecutors, the state? Did anything, come to give you a feeling that they were collectively remorseful for what happened to you?
1: No, nah, I mean, it It, it wasn't until I, I am who I am now, but initially, you know, it was, it was, it was nothing, man. Like, all right, my bad, you know, good luck. And like, mm-hmm. you know, I was never compensated. And so it, it just, it wasn't until how I am now. And now everyone has a microphone ready to stick it in my face to hear what I have to say. But I had some of these same feelings and thoughts that I have now. It's just that I worked my ass sure. off to get acknowledged in a field that everybody else is in now, which is the law. And that's part of your story, but it's not part of the book. I believe that
0: you made a claim in Wisconsin with the claims board for yeah. what they put you through. And that that claim was rejected.
1: It was. It was denied. And I am actually writing the outline for my second book, Justice for Sale. While well, I'll go into that and also mm-hmm. Things like, you know, the jury issue that I was speaking to you about and and rehabilitation and stuff like that. But, yeah, you know, it was just it was so much that that it was so much that happened in those 10 years after. Right. To get to where I am right now. Man, we did mention that, but we didn't go into detail as we as we will be going in, into the next book. But it's just it's just great. The system isn't set up for people to go through it and to be rehabilitated. It's just not. But what happened? Because if, if
0: your story isn't the basis for a claim to be paid for a miscarriage of
1: justice, I, I don't know what story could. But here's the thing this is what I want people to listen and to understand. I am amongst the bigger population of those who have been exonerated. We don't get compensated all the time. You have to find a hook. Qualified immunity is keeping a lot of people from getting paid. Hmm. So what is the test?
0: What, 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 do you have to, what do you have to show to get better? So
1: basically what you have to show is that someone maliciously, intentionally violated your constitutional rights. And that, that can be in the eye of the beholder. If in my case, there was a statement that didn't turn up until after my conviction, that statement led to the reversal of my conviction. Well, the officer said that she made a mistake and didn't include it. And his name was on the witness list. So the court said, well, is you know, we can't grant 1983 compensation on that. Sounds like to me, your lawyer didn't do his due diligence. So then you have to go and turn and make a claim against the lawyer. Well, if your lawyer doesn't have insurance or if his insurance only pays out $10,000, where do you go from there, Greg?
0: Right, right. Well, and I guess that sort of leads us back to you know, that's a state actor, of course, but I guess that leads us back to your accuser. Has she ever come forward and contacted you and said horrible mistake, nothing,
1: Hmm. nothing. And then, and the thing is we're still working on my co-defendant. The conviction was reinstated, but he was given time served because he missed the deadline to file when I filed. Mm -hmm. So we have talked to the, the, the roommate and the roommate came out and was like, look, man, I'm, I'm sorry this happened. You know, we were told by the police one thing. Come to find out, we later realized it was a lie. And, you know, that, that's as much as we've gotten. And, you know, look, people have asked me this, and and this is, this is the honest-to-God truth. We were all kids, and the adults weren't being adults. They knew good and well that this was a situation where, you know, her roommate walks in a room, and it's an embarrassing situation. Her roommate's calling their names, mad at her for being on her bed, and it went from a juvenile situation to someone you know feeling like that they were being slut-shamed to now there's a false accusation and then the the, the officers took this false accusation and they they used the historical depiction that they've always used they thought greg we were kids from the projects they thought we didn't have good upbringings they thought we were gangbangers we were none mm-hmm. of that we were all raised well strong family backgrounds moms were in our lives Fathers were around, and part of the reason why we ended up in Wisconsin was because we told our parents we were spending the night over each other's house, because we would Mm -hmm. get in the car and go party and stuff like that other places, because we weren't gang members. So we would be attacked by gangs. We would be attacked by the police in the neighborhoods. I don't think people understand that for people who aren't partaking in the nonsense in these neighborhoods, you're a real victim by both the police who are looking for the perpetrators who you just so happen to look like and also by the perpetrators themselves who think that you're just a nerd for not being in gangs. So we would go outside of our neighborhood, and that's how we ended up in Wisconsin, where we thought we would be safe and wouldn't have to duck from a drive-by. Little did we know that there was a whole system that historically lynched young Black men, and we were next in line. Is this a case where
0: prosecutorial judgment failed? Is this a case that never should have have gone to trial? Or is this a case where the defense was just flubbed, the system was stacked against you, and it turned
1: out the way it was? It was a hybrid. But more importantly, it was that first that you mentioned. This was about a prosecutor's discretion, right? Because here's the thing. The witness statement got the remaining co-defendant's charges all dismissed. Mm -hmm. The prosecutor had the discretion right then and there to grant us a new trial. He instead, in turn and in writing, said, no, your lawyers wanted to go with a no-defense strategy, so it's not up to me to give you guys a second chance or a second theory at your defense. You should have called them if you were going to call them. And that's the callousness that Mm -hmm. is within our criminal justice system.
0: So we talked about this before we started, but I was the managing partner of a big firm that had a a criminal practice. And- I grew really uncomfortable with a couple of components of the criminal justice system. I always understood and had confidence that there was prosecutorial discretion as a checks and balance, and that the judges would be the safety net if that didn't work. And and yeah. what I really came to fear is that, you know, I've heard prosecutors say, and, and this is a minority of them, not the majority of them, but a minority yeah. of them. I've heard them say words like well, I just have to put on my case and and the truth will will find its way through the trial. And if they're actually innocent, you know, that's something for the court to do. And then and then the courts get stuck with no discretion, with minimum sentencing guidelines. And it feels to me that the, the checks and balances in the criminal system, particularly those two have been stripped, leaving exclusively this adversarial component that can lead to bad outcomes. Yeah. I'm not even sure what question I was posing there, but I was was trying to get to how do we get prosecutorial judgment back in the system? How do we get judges to be put back in a place in which they can do what they think is right as opposed to being forced to exercise the discretion that a legislature has told them is is what they should have?
1: So one of the first things that we need to to figure out and, and continue to work on is diversity in the legal field. And what I mean by that is this, just think about this. When you think about where the power lies in terms of the lawyers, it lies within the big firms because what? They have big pockets. They have big resources. But now mm-hmm. take a look at the at the at the firms partners and you know chair of the partners. You don't see many African American men there. It's just mm-hmm. it's just the truth. And so right. if you don't see many African American men there, how do they make the suggestion or lead the charge and say, listen, y'all, we've never done this before, but in the county in which this firm sits, there's an issue going on with bail, or there's an issue going on with you know these young black kids who are you know being over-sentenced. Let's take on one or two of those a year, or let's take on one that has the opportunity to create precedent to protect. You don't see that, and until you get the diversity, you're not going to see it. Let's go a little bit further. Prosecutors, right? 90-something percent of prosecutors are all male white, right? So that's an issue. If you don't have, you know, you know, black male prosecutors who are able to implement certain things and say, look, this is wrong. We're 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 hammering a certain sector and it's it's not, you know, right. Let's go a little bit further, judges. You know, judges, it's I'll use an example, the Stanford swimmer. So here's a kid who gets, you know, caught in Stanford. You know, he's Drunk girl passed out on the side of a garbage can. You know, this sicko decides he's going to take advantage of her and sexually assaults her. He's caught in the act. He goes, he's adjudicated. The judge gives him about three months in prison because he says he doesn't, you know, think that he, he could survive in prison. Well, what was the difference between him and me as a 17-year-old in front of it? Yeah, it was a different judge, but the difference is I historically look like the type who can handle prison, because that's who you see who dominates the prison system. So we need diversity. And that diversity that I speak of, it all starts before you get to law school. It starts before you get to law school, creating opportunities for for kids to come out of these neighborhoods without a bullet in them or or a record that keeps them from getting into law school. And then the law schools themselves. If you're a law school right now, Greg, and you don't have a criminal uh, law clinic, or some type of practicum that exposes our kids, our babies, our future leaders to what's the real realities of our system. Well, how the hell do we expect for them to be equipped with the knowledge and tools to go fix it if we aren't giving it to them as soon as possible? So
0: Jared, there's nothing you said there that I can disagree with, but you gave me one moment of pause, which is, I believe and have been advocating that, you know, mandatory sentencing is a bad thing. And you just gave Mm. me an example where judicial discretion was a bad outcome and that the guy you just told me about, the rapist you just told me about, he got an unusually light sentence. And so, you know, I often, I don't think I go back on this much, but, you know, which way do we go? Do, do Do we err on the side of outcomes like that? Or do we err on the side of mandatory sentencing, which produces equally terrible stories the other direction?
1: We have to go with the discretion, but the discretion cannot be unchecked, mm-hmm. you know. And in this situation, you can't. Come on, man! This this guy is raping this young girl unconscious right. on the side of me and three. So, no, that guy. And I believe that that guy was voted out his next term, right? I use as a that as an example to say that diversity is one of the big diversity and and mm-hmm. and when I'm talking about diversity, I'm not just talking about you know color. I'm talking about diverse ways of thinking. People who right. are exposed to both, you know, what it's like to to affluent and 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 communities who are struggling and who can balance that and that, and that's what I'm saying. Like you know. This is about. I don't know what that judge was thinking. Clearly, he had lost his mind uh, Mm -hmm. with that sentence that he had given, and he was blistered as a result of it, uh, and should have been. But if you look at my prosecutor, clearly this man had lost his mind to think that it was okay to dismiss the charges in one and keep the other two and make them go the long route, where we could have been stabbed, beaten, killed, you know, in the prison system. So I think even with those two examples. We have to have discretion, but we just have we have to have more diversity and checks and balances within that that discretion.
0: Well, no, no reasonable person could disagree with you on that. We just have to make that happen. So I want to talk about the positive aspect of your of your story because we've only been focusing on the negative, but I do want to ask you a question before we get there. So I'm that lawyer that that you described in many ways. I'm a white guy with too much gray hair. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a corporate bankruptcy lawyer. You know, I'm a thousand dollar an hour guy. Who's always represented, um, you know, big companies and, you know, well-to-do folks. What, what is it that, that I can do? Uh, because, you know, if I took on a criminal case, I could learn it, but I would be fearful that I would be doing more damage right. than I would be doing good. Like w- what, what does a yeah. guy like me Who the law has been, you know, so
1: good to. What what do I do? Here's what you can do. So I have Life After Justice is an organization that I created, you know, with with to answer that question that you have. And basically you could support. Like if you told me, Jared, listen, I'm gonna come up with a group of guys. We're gonna come up with 50000 dollars a year for you. We want you to create a fellow. It could be called the law clerk fellow. We will create that fellow. And we will create that fellow and that fellow will do the exact work that both you and I come up with. Or you could say what you're doing with them is exactly what I want. They can they can help with Mm -hmm. doing the research. They can help with doing the litigation on these issues that, that we're talking about. Like right now, Greg, explain to me why why any interaction with the authorities, whether it be with an accuser or whether it be with a defendant, why is any interaction not recorded? Because we have Apple phones, we have this, we have that. So it comes down to the litigation part of it, right? How do we take something and litigate it all the way to it becomes precedent? In order to do that, we need bodies. We need resources. We need to create more folks who are pushing this needle along. So that's how you could do it. We need donations. We need folks to say, okay, look, I don't know anything about criminal law, but I know what you're saying makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Me and my firm has gotten together. We're gonna three years, fifty thousand dollars. You find find a fellow, let's go for it. That would help so much, Greg.
0: Well, w- you and I are gonna talk about that when we uh when when we're not recording, but uh what you're doing is is so important. And and like I said, I, I had nothing to do with it, but I I have this anxiety and I have this discomfort and I have this almost feeling of responsibility for what you, what you went through as a, as a member of this profession, but yeah. let's turn to the redemption part of this story. The, yeah. the, the part that's inspiring. So you get out of prison, what,
1: 2007, I think it is 2007, February. To, I come home.
0: You get out of prison in 2007. And there's no doubt that we could do another show on just the rough patch that you go through before, you know, the your life starts to come together for you, but, but kind of Summarizing that part, you you go to college, you graduate, you get your degree, you go to Loyola of Chicago. Um, so much positive happens to you. You, you become embraced by a, a number of you know noteworthy judges and others, lawyers in the legal mm-hmm. profession. And then when you graduate, you you go to work for the, the Innocence Project, right? Yeah. And and so you come out of law school. That choice seems
1: obvious, but but walk me through how you make that first choice. Yeah. So so when I came out of law school, I graduated and I remember, you know, they give you just the, the placeholder until your diploma comes in the mail. And so I remember taking it to my mom and I remember, you know, she's just broke down. She's crying. And I'm like, you know, why are you crying? We're supposed to be celebrating now. She's like, no, I'm not crying because I'm sad. I'm crying because I know that you you will not just go on to go make a lot of money. You'll, you'll make some mother not have those wrinkles and creases of anguish on her forehead because she can't afford to help her son. She was like, you you know, I don't think you understand that. Just you going through that is one thing, but me not being able to help you made me feel helpless. And there's nothing like that for a mother, you know, to feel helpless. And so uh, I, I took that as a sign what we were just speaking about figuring out how to do good and be able to take care of your family. I started the wrong way. I started like literally putting every dollar I had back into these cases, and it wasn't a good model or anything at all for business success. But I wanted to not just be a story. I also wanted to have the skill set. So I thought, what better thing for me to do than to finish up this clerkship, And then go and work for the Innocence Project for two years because I I didn't I wanted to not only know how to do what got me home, but I also wanted to to learn how to take it to the new level. For example, there's a reason why, Greg, there hasn't just been the stopping of one iPhone. Right. We're on 13 right now because there were ideas implemented to make it better. So I wanted to take what the Innocence Project started. And, and, and make it better with my own group. That's why Life After Justice came around and was created, because now I believe I know what it takes to like do this. We have to key in on certain cases, go all in on those cases to create precedent to prevent other cases.
0: So. And this is where it's really interesting to me what you're doing because you know what the Innocence Project does, and I mean that's it's just wonderful work. But at the end of the day, you know, it's supported by um, donations and it's supported by people who are acting, you know, in in a charitable way for for lack of a better term. And and I've long been a believer that you have to align economic interests to really, in some ways, change the world. And so, in 2017. You open your law firm, the offices of, of Jared Adams, yeah. and you set out to take on cases that are not only criminal defense, not only kind of 1983 actions, but wrongful conviction litigation. Yeah, How do you build a business model around that? Because I really think that this is how, I don't want to be crass, but I'm a believer in capitalism and I'm a believer that 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 this is how we make the most substantive changes in the world is allowing the best and brightest of lawyers to do you have to do well to do good, I believe that and and, and yeah. so so what did you set out to do, and how did you set out to build a business around doing good
1: yeah so i I had to figure it out because no one was. So I was making $40,000 a year at the Innocence Project. So I'm in New York making $40,000 a year. Man, I could barely afford to pay attention, you know? And so what I had to figure out was, okay, how do I put this thing together and, and, and do well and do good at the same time? And what I realized was this, there was a lot of, of, if you found the right case, it could be lucrative. There were firms who had, you know, brought in $100 million you know and attorney fees off of just doing wrongful convictions, but the, but those same firms, you never saw them invest back in to the pool of people who get out and they don't have anything or anything like that, right so i what I did was I got a hold of my first civil case, and I started to work that case up wrongful conviction um and I did it both state and both federal, so I was able to settle the state the state claim in order Mm -hmm. to get the money to do the federal and that's what i did i literally had i I did not take a salary for three years and i worked on these cases like i put all of my money and i didn't do it because i wanted to i did it because no one was giving me a hundred thousand dollar a year opportunity to do what i wanted to do so i took a leap and did it on my own and so what i'm now at is this now I have several different 1983 cases right now that are in the oven. I have other wrongful conviction cases that will eventually be 1983 cases, right? So there's a model and, and a way to make money off of it to do continue to do the good in it as well. And and we've been we went a bit further because I, I noticed you know realize we have way more needs than we have what's coming in. So the reason why I created the the nonprofit was because Greg, I want to teach people this. And in order for me to right. teach people this, I had to set up an incubator. And the incubator is the nonprofit. So now I get the chance to get law students, first year, second year, lawyers. Um, that's why I was talking to you about the fellows, because it allows people to, to get in this yep. think tank, just do the work and not worry about Sally May for the next two, three years.
0: Right, right. So from a business though, and, and again, I don't want to sound crass, but from a business, you're the story and you're sort of the brand. And so, you know, do you, do you build a firm in which you, you know, staff it with, you know, associates or virtual associates or freelance lawyers in the background and, and, you know, because you have to be disproportionately cost conscious because you don't have the luxury of raising your rates 50 bucks a year to cover what is, you know, inflation next year. So, you know, what, what steps have you taken to, to build this, firm from an economic model to make
1: sure that it works. So law clerk, I mean, honestly, I I mean, and I'm not just saying this to plug law clerk, but how it works is this, you you need a network of contractors until you can get to the stability that it is to be a big boy or be a big girl, you know, firm. Mm -hmm. Right. And so you have to do that and be economical because you have the cost of court reporters and you have the cost of travel. So you built this virtual network of people to help you get it done. Yeah, you'll be the one who's flying and arguing and stuff like that, but you you essentially have admin work and researchers and writers. And you can find some some good people, good qualified folks. You know, and like everywhere, you got to go through and get the right one for you and what you're what you're trying to do, but you could find a group of good folks and be able to, to, to build that way. At the same time, you still have to be on top of, of your business and on top of your, your practice and stuff like that. But to be able to have access to some folks who have taken a lot of the checks and balances that you wouldn't have to necessarily go through to hire anyone away with law clerk vetting them out, it's allowed me to be able to move around. Right now, my, my practice is in, I'm national. So I'm all across the country on certain cases where, especially where people can afford me. But now I'm, I'm, you know, able to 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 Chicago, New York, Milwaukee. I'm able to do this. Um, you know, a, a lot in large part with the relationships and the work that I'm getting done on on law clerk. You know, to have look these these cases are are big. So when you need to research issues, you're talking about three four hours of research. I mean. Am I? You tell me, am I bringing in money if I'm sitting there three, four hours researching one issue that I know has to be done? But, you know, nah. So you you're able to use someone and you have an Mm -hmm. in-house system where, where Greg, you used to have to hang out a job ad and hope you get the right right person. So let's talk though about what you want to build
0: because you know you are going national and yeah. uh, I think that's wonderful because you know your 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 story is a, this great springboard and I think that every case you do has a spillover effect and is more more than sort of the sum of the parts of that case. But do you want to have offices, virt- I mean do you want to have physical offices in in all of these locations or does it make more sense For the business you're building to be kind of virtual in light of what we've gone through over the last couple of years like what is it you envision for for your platform looking like as a as a starting point as you as you grow this into you know however size empire you want i'm
1: sure you're going to be able to achieve but what is it you're looking for so what i'm looking to do is this remember how i had the conversation with you before about how when you look at the titans of our industry and you look at the impact that they that they're able to have because they're so huge, and then you look at the diversity issue at the top. I'm trying to flip that on its head, Greg. Mm-hmm. And what I want is, I want to tighten. I want to tighten, you know, led by the person that you continue to see get stopped, unarmed and killed, a black man. And I and I'm doing this as a way to to chip away at the stigmas that that have been historically placed on us. You know, I I, I think that that sometimes people. read what they read. And then when they actually have a conversation with me, they'll walk away and they'll say things like, man, damn, you know, you're so impressive or you're so articulate. It's a compliment, but I don't think that they know that, that, you know, in all actuality, it's like, it's one of these things where, you know, you, you believe then, um, what was historically depicted as if, you know, we couldn't be equipped. A lot of this comes down to training and who you're around. right? And I was around some good people, man. I don't want people to think for a second that. I swallowed a smart pill on my way in or out of prison because that's not what happened, man. I had, you know, former prosecutor AUSA and Mike Monaco. I had former judges. I had the community invest in me in order to get here. So now I'm trying to invest back in the community. And so, you know, this is a way to do it. But I want to tighten. I want a big boy because that's how you get to creating the pipeline of diversity. That's how we're able to hire former judges, former prosecutors to help build out, to build a model of, of producing and 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 getting involved, and more importantly, having the resources to do it. I'll ask you the question that you, you know, in the assembly fashion that you asked me. Name one. Name me a big national African-American firm that rivals some of the ones that 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 you can think of. You know, Winston, Strom, and Sidley, and like you don't, you, mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. you know? No, I I I mean, again, you've made a point that you can't refute. Um, and you know, the reasons for that are many and complex, but they all essentially boil down to, to sort of the same historical problems that we're, yeah you know, that you're fighting for and trying to deal with. So I want to ask, I know you wrote the book for all the right reasons and, and there's no, yeah. there's not, there's not any part of me that worries about that, but what has the book done for your business, um, in the couple of months that it's been out? Has it, has it, more has it, has it changed
1: things? <laughs> no man right now it's creating more work because because mm. everyone wants to talk about it like they they're mm. like man this is like a really good book <laughs> so that's that's people's reaction and i'm I'm thankful that it's receptive like that but honestly Greg, this is what i need to do i mean if not you know just speaking with my wife and stuff like that i have to get out here and i have to speak about the book because i have to get the support to build out the, the model that I'm trying to build out, so I don't drop dead and kill myself. I'm trying to do it all. It's not it's not going to be possible. And all I'm saying is this: right, you know, folks listening right now, they might have in mind who they've always donated to. Maybe it's the, it's the same old, you know, from 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 long before. And I don't want to name organizations and tick them off. But what I'm saying is this: give someone else mm-hmm. a shot. Give someone else a shot. Mm-hmm. New ideas. And I think that Life After Justice, I think that what I'm doing is that new shot because it's sound. And what we're doing is we're doing duplication, Greg. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to Mm -hmm. duplicate as many people as we can that are knowledgeable about this issue to help tackle it because there are people like yourself and other folks who are, it would be more work for them to learn and get caught up to speed on this as opposed to talking about it and supporting it through however way they can do it.
0: Well, it is a good book, and I don't just say that because you're here. It, it's already been a book that uh, I've gifted and I've bought uh, people for, and, and it is. It's going to be my my holiday gift of default. I promise you that. But after we're done here, the stuff I want to talk to you about, because um, yeah, uh, I, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna find find a way to help what you're doing because it's important, and you're Thank the you right so guy. Much. From a business perspective, though, you know, y- you find yourself in a spot now where you can't be the guy writing the motions uh, yes you're you're squandering your value uh, and, yes. and you know I see too many lawyers who kind of go the wrong direction on that y- y- your highest and best use is you know being out there in the universe of ideas it it's promoting you know what happened to you and then building a firm behind you based upon your brand and that's in my opinion kind of the law firm of the future in many ways, which is, which is, there's going to be a thousand different business models based upon kind of the individual creative nature of lawyers. And, uh, this is a long, long way of, of me saying, Jared, I, I, I congratulate you for what you're building because you've taken a, a really, really a tragic just to uncover it a really, really tragic chapter in not only your life, but the life of the criminal justice system. And you've built this foundation to go do and make the most of it. And I want to, I want to thank you on behalf of everybody in this profession. I, I want to kind of thank you as a, as an American, and I, I hope you and I can, uh, Continue this conversation because uh, I and we yeah. do want to support what you're doing. We're, we're going to put a link to not, to everything you're doing uh, in the show notes. We're going to put a link to the okay. book. I couldn't encourage our listeners more to uh, to not just buy one, but to, to you'll be happy giving this 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 book out because yeah. as tragic as the first. Half of it is, I guess, the last third is what I deem to be your redemption story uh, of of good things happening to you. And uh, I'm so happy and excited that you joined us here this morning, uh, Jared, and uh, we wish you the best. And uh, if you don't mind, uh, perhaps from time to time, we can have you back
1: and check in on how things are going. Absolutely, man. I I really I think this was an amazing idea that you guys you guys came up with, Greg. I mean, because it was you know, it was just right on time, and I, like you just said, like I'm out here, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing in the resources, but you gotta have someone there who's doing the research, who's on, you know, on top of everything, and and you guys created something that I think that that I want to be able to be around and be a part of and helping the. There's an there's a huge sector of attorneys who look a lot like me, you know, who need to know what law clerk is. So I look forward to speaking with you, man, and working with you guys later on.
0: What hadn't even occurred to me that we we were playing some small part in what you're doing, but that makes me proud. So, uh, Jared, thanks, and uh, we'll talk soon.
1: All right. Thank you, Greg. Talk to you soon.